Hello. The high-wire balancing act that is central bank policy gave Fed observers a shot of adrenaline last week. The chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, discussed growing sentiment amongst officials that rate rises could be brought forward. The comments give even more focus to a question that's on the minds of economists and investors everywhere. What is the precise nature of the inflation that's surfacing across the world? Is it transitory or is there something more permanent about the rising costs that come with the stimulation and reopening of economies? How should investors allocate for either or both? This month we tackle those questions head on. I'm Richard Edgar and this is Fidelity International's Rich Pickings, the Asset Allocation Podcast. Well, joining me in London are global economist Anna Stubnitska and Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income, Steve Ellis, and in Hong Kong, multi-asset portfolio manager, Matt Quaife. Welcome to you all. Hi, Hi Richard. Richard. Now, for many of us, rising costs means tightening our belts. So I'd like to know, what's the luxury item that would be the very last to fall off your shopping list? Uh, Matt? Cheese. Cheese. Now, that, that, that's a pretty broad, broad term. In Hong Kong, you pay about 120 honkies or... or uh... £12 for a block of cheddar. Uh, so it's already pretty luxury out here. So that, that's not fancy cheese necessarily. No, no, no. <laughs> but um, We get imported cheese out here and it's um, it, it's rather rather expensive, but it, it still finds its way to the fridge. Thank you. Um, noted. Steve, how about you? Your luxury item that would be the last to get cancelled as inflation takes hold? Well, I've actually got two. Um, the first one is my Peloton subscription, which has just been a, a godsend during lockdown. Um, and my second one is, uh, I think it has to say, um, keeping my wine fridge fully stocked. That is a luxury. Well, it depends on the wine that's in there, but I'm taking a, an educated guess here, Steve. And Anna, let me, uh, let me come to you. Well, it's something different for me. It's definitely going to be my uh, favourite lip gloss. Lip gloss. Um, yeah. And is it an expensive one? Yes, a Chanel one. A Chanel one. Okay. I'm surprised Steve didn't mention that um, in his list of luxuries. <laughs> we'll, we'll come to that another time. That was my third. Yes. Um, Anna, I mentioned in the introduction the questions around inflation and exactly what's happening in economies as they begin to open up. So can you give us an overview of what the data is saying and why it's now preying on the minds of those at the Fed? Well, inflation uh, has started picking up quite a lot in the second quarter of this year. Uh, we had um, the May reading for uh, U.S. inflation, which uh, the headline came in at 5%, and, and the core was well below the target of uh, 2%. And uh, there is this uh, really hot debate going on whether uh, this pickup is going to be transitory or uh, more persistent. Um, so there are a number of factors which are contributing uh, to the spike in inflation. Firstly, the base effects uh, from last year as, it, as inflation collapsed last year during the lockdown. That's something that's clearly temporary and will start phasing out. But also we are observing a number of different um, supply shortages in supply chains. Uh, we are observing uh, wage pressure in certain sectors. The demand and supply imbalances generally in the labor market. Uh, so there's all these factors contributing. And the Fed has been telling us that they believed that it it's all going to be transitory. Um, but we do question 
this statement because some of the factors that might continue for a little while, they can actually become more persistent. And it seems that the Fed is questioning that too, and hence the change of direction in the last meeting. Brilliant. We're going to look at that in much more detail as we go through this episode. But Steve, there was an immediate reaction in markets. But other than that, they've pretty much taken the Fed news in their stride. and They've been relatively calm. Why, why is that? I, th- I think it's down to pricing of interest rate hikes in the future. So the fact that the Fed are now um, pricing or at least expecting two hikes in 2023, you know, the, the one significant thing that happened after the FOMC meeting was a very sharp flattening of the uh, the treasury curve. So basically the market thinks that um, there's only a limited amount to which interest rates can actually go higher in the longer term. And then I think the other reason why we, we potentially see calm here is that, you know, when you think about it, Richard, we have a huge amount of debt outstanding in the global economy. So it's um, in about 358% of GDP, about $280 trillion. The system only clears when the refinancing rate, the risk-free rate, for example, 10-year treasuries, stay at very low levels. So I think that, um, there's only again, there's only a limited amount to which the bond market can actually tantrum without the, the central banks coming in and try to stabilise things. And I think my, the point I've been making is that real yields will adjust very aggressively in the event that inflation expectations start building, that central banks have to come in and stabilise things. Otherwise, the system just doesn't clear. So stabilise, you mean bring, bring rates back down again? Yeah, exactly. So that would be through you know, expansion of balance sheets, through operation twist, through yield curve control, whatever it takes. But treasury yields have to be have to stay at a very low level for the system to clear. Whatever it takes um, forever. Matt, if um, the implication is that rates will rise, even if it's capped, as, as Steve is saying, um, what do you do as a portfolio manager? Um, what, do you, what are you looking at um, when you're trying to, uh, to allocate? Are you looking at earnings, for example, is that an indicator that's more useful than before? Yeah, I think one way to think about it is that equities have had a tailwind of multiple expansion. And a lot of that's been driven by lower and lower bond yields. And if bond yields start to rise and this kind of slight pivot by the, by the Fed, um, albeit, um, as Steve said, relatively measured, that, that means that multiples are quite unlikely to expand further. We'd, we'd probably say that it's more neutral on uh, multiples, not necessarily contracting. But that means that further equity performance needs to come through earnings uh, and, and earnings need to deliver quite strong growth and above consensus in order to you know, keep pushing on. And we think that can happen this year. Um, inventories are incredibly low. And so that kind of inventory restocking can occur this year. But I think a more interesting time will be, you know, sometimes we overstock and then and then they've got these mini cycles within the bigger business cycle. So, you know, we, we're, we're happy with risk at the moment, but there are some kind of yardsticks out, out later in this year where we're going to have to really think about that. Okay, well, to hear about the Fed's announcements and how they might begin to nudge Fidelity's core asset allocation, I spoke to the Global Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey. Uh, here he starts by talking about the activity that's happening below the surface of markets, where despite a general stability, the cast list of winners and losers has been transformed. Interestingly, uh, that with bond markets calming down, as we'd seen during uh, uh, Q2, that uh, you've seen you know, a significant comeback in tech, the sort of quality part of, um, of technology, the long duration um, type assets um, bouncing back as, as you saw that calming down. Um, and I think you know, the challenge as we look forward is that, one, how 
bond markets respond to the interest rate implications and at the moment flattening the curve. And so there's a slight implication this is going to take off um, uh, you know, some growth there. But the challenge now is that you know, do we see those inflation signs actually increasing? Because then the market will wonder whether the Fed is talking a little bit more uh, you know, aggressively but actually is still way behind the curve in terms of what's happening in the real economy and what's happening with inflation and and do they need to get on top of that sooner rather than later. Okay, well, how are you then, in the light of all of that information and the the analysis, how are you steering Fidelity's um, investment team? Because last month when we last spoke, the allocation was positive on equities, neutral on credit, and um, there was a move taking cash to a more neutral position. Have any of those views changed in light of what we've just been talking about? So I think the thing that um, most probably gets put back on the table is the degree that the markets are going to now be thinking about tapering. And the reality is that that will be aligned to you know, growth coming off and a hope that um, uh, inflation will be uh, you know, contained. I think the challenge really comes around that duration profile as we go through Q3, depending on how the inflation data and some of this underlying uh, dynamics that we've seen within our own analyst surveys of the, the micro factors that seem to be continuing to um, to pick up and suggest that actually there is some real traction to this, that it may not be as transitory as uh, hoped. And therefore, you may see more signs of that um, flowing through. If you do, I think the, the challenge now is to consider what is our duration position going forward. Um, you know, the markets, yields went up a bit and they came back down. But when you look forward, if you start to see that actually, again, the conversation is around what to do, but the actions are limited. And yet the real economic data shows that actually we are starting to see these things get traction and flow through. I think the markets will have to start to respond to that. And that means that you know, you'll start to see bond yields actually um, take notice of it um, you know, quickly and start to rise uh, again. In terms of the risk profile, in some ways, it's the uh, you know the, the part for the equity markets is again that that rotational influence. Does it then you know start to um, undermine some of that recovery in the long duration um, you know technology based high quality um, recovery that we'd seen um, in more recent weeks? In some ways, have to take your guide from. You know what we see in terms of the of the, the data. In in some in some ways, almost put aside the words because if if the Fed says we're going to start tapering tomorrow, then that's very different. I think you equity markets will respond. You know, and bond markets most probably actually are somewhat supported in terms of the yield curve will flatten um, further and long end will be uh, underpinned a little little from that. But again, if they if they talk about it and the, and the data starts to come through as we think it may well do, then you'll start to see the market saying the risk that we thought of a policy mistake is actually back on the table quite firmly. The danger of all talk, no action. Global Chief Investment Officer Andrew McCaffrey saying that the markets will begin to lose patience with the Fed if it's just words and no action. And you can hear the full interview with Andrew on the Rich Pickings channel. Uh, Steve, how likely do you think a policy misstep is at this stage? Well, it's funny um, because I... I Totally agree with Andrew on this one in that um, you, know, you get tantrums because the market judges after a period of extraordinary accommodation to have made the Fed to have made a policy mistake. So, you know, we always look back at previous episodes where we had tantrums, that being in, in, um, in 2013 and also in Q4 2018, 
what characterized those, the damage is done by very rapid move high in real yields. But the interesting thing about, I think, 2013 was that people tend to associate that ta- the tapering with the tantrum in that, you know, the tapering actually caused bond yields to go higher. It simply wasn't the case at all. In fact, what happened was that, um, you know, in, in March of 2013, um, the 10-year uh, bond yields in the U.S. actually fell about 44 basis points or so on the, the assumption that, you know, with full resolution of the banking system, with um, the likelihood that the Fed was about to, you know, to actually pull, you know, to tighten policy, that um, yields fell. Um, Mr. Bernanke then subsequently said that um, in May that, um, hang on a minute, you know, we'll, we're going to start tapering in September. It's going to take 18 months. So the market was very frustrated by the Fed delaying that tapering. And as a result, we saw Treasury yields, 10-year yields moving up about 120 basis points higher on the frustration of a policy mistake. And I think that's what we had in the place of this year. Um, in that um, I think the market was, uh, again, thinking the Fed is way behind the curve here. They're trying to get inflation in the system. They're going to act with a, a lag here. But um, I think that's why the reaction to last Wednesday, Wednesday's FOMC was you know, a very sharp flattening of the 530s curve, you know, one of the largest in a decade. And, and the market actually repricing. And when you look further out, um, the market actually priced out rate hikes beyond 2026 in that thinking they were going to front load. So I think that we won't get tantrums as long as the Fed stay on track and actually show the market that they are you know, deliberately going to start um, tightening policy and, and they won't let inflation expectations build too rapidly. So all in the communication, it does sound like a real high wire act, as, uh, as I said in the introduction. I, I think so, yeah. The communication is really important. They have to guide the market to show, again, it's the repricing um, I think the Fed was behind the curve. We had two dot plots priced into 2023 from that FOMC uh, meeting. And I think that reassured the market that um, the Fed wouldn't let inflation expectations go high. So uh, straight after that, we saw inflation expectations fall in break-evens. Um, we saw Treasury yields uh, decline quite sharply. So I think they have to show that they're on top of this. Okay, well, Steve, you just talked there about um, inflation expectations. Um, Anna, why are they so important? I mean, we've got plenty of lessons from, from history for that. Why are they so important? If we look at history, it's um, quite clear that uh, over the last couple of decades, inflation expectations have become uh, the most important determinant of actual inflation. So if we look back uh, to the um, 80s and 90s, um, it was the inflation itself, so in, uh, lagged inflation, um, that was important in driving the inflation process. So it was very persistent and dependent on what uh, people saw in terms of um, its history. However, with the change in central banking framework and the move towards inflation targeting, it's the inflation expectations that have become so important in driving that, that actual inflation process. And that's why we think that uh, while a lot of the factors we are observing now, factors that are pushing inflation up, uh, they might be transitory, but if they become embedded in uh, people's inflation expectations, it can become a self-fulfilling process that pushes up inflation expectations uh, and then pushes up actual inflation. And so this is the mechanism through which um, the inflation can become more persistent. If it does take hold, Anna, how do the different asset classes react with that sort of inflation? 
Well, we if we do a standard uh, analysis of asset returns uh, under various inflationary regimes, we we see that equities and bonds both suffer in the regime when inflation is high and also rising. A lot depends, of course, on the uh, central bank reaction function. Uh, if the Fed uh, stays well behind the curve, if they become more dovish again, perhaps, uh, but inflation continues to rise well above the target, that will become a concern for markets. Um, and on the other hand, if they do demonstrate that they want uh, to uh, get inflation under control and the overshoot is not going to be uh, so large, um, and the period for averaging inflation in their new framework is not that long, then uh, it can be more benign. But overall, uh, given the high debt levels, as, as we discussed, as Steve mentioned, uh, we know that it's very important uh, for the Fed to maintain negative real rates uh, to support that heavy le leverage in the system. So that sensitivity of markets to high inflation is now actually much higher, uh, you know, at lower levels of rates. So history might tell us one thing, but actually uh, th that the markets are so sensitive, it can happen at lower thresholds. So the sensitivity of equity and that markets, uh, particularly given, uh, given where valuations are today. Matt, there's an awful lot for a portfolio manager like you to think about, isn't there? Um, we've got the inflation and the uh, the maybes and possibilities that, um, that Anna was talking about. But at the same time, all of the economies are transforming, um, not least because of the pandemic, but also the, the megatrends, uh, demographic change and the green revolution as well. You allocate across um, asset classes. Um, how are you positioning your portfolios in this environment? I think those those mega trends are really interesting uh, because if you if you chart a working population um, percentage, so how many of the population are working um, across major economies, it, it's it's been falling for some time as the baby boomers um, retire. And if you plot that against bond yields across the same nations, um, it fits really well for 30 years um, and it's and it's only getting more negative so kind of the, there's this demographic negative push but the the, the green revolution that other mega trend is um, is is also interesting because you've effectively you're going to price an externality in kind of classic economic terms and, and 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 this can only really kind of push up prices you've got to you've got to account for those for those extra costs so you've got these kind of mega trends pushing in pushing in both directions um, potentially we're over slightly different um, time frames it's useful to have that as a back drop of investing as i said before like kind of short term because we see earnings um coming through and because we don't see large central bank um issues at this point we're still overweight risk and we're trying to play some of those mega trends so the sectors and the areas that really benefit from the green economy from future connectivity from from various elements like the commodities that are going to do really well in this new economy and, and longer term Long term, we're going to have to um, really think about where returns come from. I think one of the one of the issues is all of this fiscal policy. Um, you know, does it create productivity? If you if you think about kind of growth, growth is population times productivity, and I'm not sure that uh, a lot of the policy at the moment is really 
targeting that productivity growth. Um, and so we, whilst we might have higher nominal growth, we might not have that much higher real growth um, o- over time. And so therefore, what does that actually mean? It means that with high multiples, equity returns over, over a very long period are likely to be lower than they have been for the last few decades. And that means we've got to be a little bit more active in how we manage portfolios to get the returns for clients. Steve, do you agree? I totally agree. I think that the risk um, longer term is that uh, productivity growth remains extremely weak, where we see further capital destruction because of policies, because of very loose monetary policy, which is effectively not allowing company, you know, the refinancing rates kept low because of huge amounts of debt. Um, and therefore, we're not seeing any creative destruction. Therefore, productivity is, is tending to go lower and lower. Um, and then on top of that, you do see um, bottlenecks happening. I know that because of opening, reopening and so on. But, you know, you've got deglobalization, many other sort of longer term trends, which could be more inflationary here. So there's my, the concern I have is that you have some form of um, whether stagflation is the right term. But certainly, um, you know, I, I don't think the policy that's being put in place now, very loose monetary policy, very weak, loose fiscal policy, is actually going to be very beneficial. It's going to crowd out ca- you know, capital formation and, and productivity later on that we're sucking resources from the future into the present. So, so that's my concern. And what advice are you giving your team of portfolio managers in fixed income? Very much in this reflation backdrop, we've been encouraging clients to look at more high-yielding types of products which have lower empirical duration. Um, you know, we've been um, advising clients to look at things like China renminbi funds because of lower correlation to, to other asset classes. Looking at global hybrids, which, you know, the um, risk premium there is very, very high. So I guess, in other words, avoiding um, sort of more interest rate sensitive, you know, higher duration types of asset classes. But again, I, um, I feel quite comfortable. You know, normally in fixed income, you're, you tend to be more on the bearish side. But I feel, I feel right now, that again, there's just such a limited amount to which yields can go higher from here um, in this environment, particularly if the Fed are going to be more proactive here. But even when they're not, I think they're just going to have to keep the plate spinning and keep the um, you know the market clearing by ever ever more increasing um, plentiful supply of dollar liquidity and through yield curve um, control or you know whatever it takes to to keep yield curves um, uh, as as flat as possible. So I, I think this is still an environment where you want to keep, uh, you need income. So there's going to be financial repression, so you need to find income. Okay, um, thank you for that. And thank you all for, for painting the, the big picture. Now let's have a look at um, what's going on at a more local level. Uh, Max Stainton is part of Fidelity's Global Macro Team. And I caught up with him uh, to hear some examples of the supply side pressures that we've been talking about. Well, Max, welcome to you. Um, you and the macro team have been uh, doing an awful lot of work on inflation. And in particular, I know that you've been pulling together a lot of the on-the-ground research that the sector analysts um, do. Can you give me some of the examples of the things that they have been reporting back to you? Yeah, absolutely. Our global tech analysts have been reporting you know, significant semiconductor shortages. Um, our China analysts, they're seeing cost inflation in raw materials, both on the consumer goods and industrial side. Our European industrial analysts, um, again, similar raw material issues, but also combined with logistical uh, challenges. Uh, and then our US industrial analysts are reporting both raw materials you know, massively increasing in price and also freight costs as well increasing. <laughs> 
So an awful lot of factors feeding in um, there. Um, but at the other end of the equation, this is all supply side, at the other end, um, you've got demand, um, which really is beginning to spike now, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So this is what we're expecting. This is the nature of what happens when you reopen economies out of lockdown. Uh, people are suddenly able to spend and go outside. And, and as a result, kind of, yes, as you say, demand is increasing at a very rapid rate. And you've mentioned semiconductors already. Um, they're incredibly important. They're in pretty much everything that we use. Yes. Um, explain what's going on there in a little bit more detail, if, if, if you can. So yeah, kind of right now, we are seeing ship delivery times reaching 18 weeks. Uh, inventories are roughly kind of 30 to 40 percent below normal levels. Uh, and as you, as you know, kind of microchips are a massive input into kind of you know, overall economic production. So right now they're over 12% of US GDP, and that's that's only climbing. And um, I mean, basic economics here, we've got um, a problem with supply, you've got climbing demand, the impact must be higher prices. Where, whereabouts are you seeing those higher prices? So, so you've got higher prices in chips themselves, but the, the actual sectors that are being affected are kind of really interesting. So, so the, the, the sectors that are actually seeing the most impact of these kind of high chip prices or indeed chip shortages isn't the obvious, like the electronic sector, but actually it's autos, it's, it's cars, uh, where we're seeing a real kind of impact on supply. Unlike electronics, which saw kind of massive boom in demand at the beginning of the pandemic, obviously at the beginning, everyone went inside, demand for autos fell off a cliff. And now as reopening is, is kind of beginning and beginning in earnest in the US, uh, demand for autos has, has really kind of taken off. It kind of the interaction of the, the stop start demand that we've seen from, from, from autos, but combined with the logistical challenges of getting chips that are produced in Asia across the Pacific to places like Michigan and Georgia, means that US car manufacturers essentially have to massively slow down production. So as of May, over half a million vehicles are estimated to have been taken out of production due to this semiconductor shortage. So that's the picture with uh, with new cars. So the main companies have had to deal with this in um, whatever way they can. Um, but there's also a ripple effect as well in, in that sector. There is, exactly. So so because consumers haven't been able to actually, haven't, have literally not been able to buy the cars, they, the new cars they want, they've gone to the second-hand market. And we're seeing kind of since 2020, used car prices are up well over 20%. Uh, because people are shifting their demand to use cars in order to get around these kind of supply bottlenecks. Well, as somebody who is rapidly realising I'm going to have to buy another car at some stage soon, as ours falls apart, um, this is very dispiriting news. So can you give me some encouragement, Max? When will things uh, sort of return to some some form of normality? Yes, yeah, it's, it's not straight away. So our, our analysts are kind of expecting the chip industry to kind of re-enter normal demand-supply balance by around Q2 2022. Oh gosh, a year from now, so I'm going to have to patch my current car up, it sounds like. But uh, (laughs) Okay, Max, thank you very much indeed for that. No worries. Max Stainton talking to me earlier. Now, Anna, what about those sticky areas of inflation like wage growth? So what we have been observing uh, so far is that the wage growth in the US in certain sectors has started picking up, despite uh, quite a significant uh, slack remaining in the labor market. Um, And that has to do partly, perhaps, uh, with um, uh, still very generous unemployment benefits. Um, So people choose to receive the benefits rather than go back to work. 
that is going to be stopped uh, this September. So we see that phasing out uh, over the next couple of months. And of course, there are still some issues with childcare. So some people cannot go back to work um, uh, given some uh, schools uh, remain closed. So this type of um, dynamics we think are transitory. Uh, but at the same time, uh, this uh, pressure on wages in the low um, wage occupations, particularly leisure and hospitality, um, has been partly driven by uh, some companies' moves uh, towards the $15 per hour minimum wage. Um, and uh, we have observed it already over the past couple of years, and now more and more companies are committing to that. So that means for them to move from the low wage, uh, wages where they are now, say, uh, somewhere between um, eight and nine dollars to 15 over the next few years, we will probably see inflation, wage inflation in these sectors uh, from around nine to 10 percent per year over the next few years. Now, that is um, compared to about three to four percent over the past few years. And that's enough. That's enough to feed into the headline figure because the the sector is large enough. Well, uh, we also think that um, this will have uh, a knock-on effect on other sectors as well, so that are somewhat higher paid, perhaps also services, uh, manufacturing, um, for that wedge between uh, low paid and uh, other sectors to sort of be maintained. So we will see pressure. And this is something that can feed into expectations and can become persistent. Matt, do you want to come in? Yeah, just, I, I'm again, I'm, I think I'm, today I'm talking a bit of the long term, but if you look at um, the share of revenue, whether it goes to capital or labor over time, and you, we, we have this data back hundreds of years, um, we are at a multi-century high of money going to capital rather than labor. It, it, it's probably unsustainable. Like how, it, how it gets unwounded is, I know it could be through regulation, but ultimately it drives politics as well. You know, it's, it's driven a lot of politics in the last years. And so what Anna's describing potentially is a turning point there. But it's not all, like, people then start talking about inflation. This, this can be a really good thing as well for consumption. You know, if you think about returning money to capital often goes to people who don't spend much. When, when you raise the, raise the wages of, of uh, people that are on lower wages, that tends to feed into a multiplier in the economy. So there's, there's the benefit on the earning side for things like equities, but then it's off, potentially off, offset by the, the multiple side, which comes through the central bank policy. And what, we, what we've got to do is judge those two over the coming years as to what, which one's going to play out harder in order to get equities right. But that's also driving demand. So that could be part of the inflation calculation as well. Exactly. And so it's this, this playoff between creation of growth, cre- creation of consumption versus uh, the, the inflation and the central bank reaction. And you've got to kind of get the blend of that right and the judgment of that right in order to understand where equity is going to go. And Anna, where, where do you think this is going over the medium term? Well, I think this is uh, even uh, uh, more complicated because on top of this, um, we have uh, the uh, trend uh, towards automation. And I think... Uh, perhaps uh, to some extent the, the COVID crisis has accelerated that thinking in the corporate sector um, that some of the jobs can be automated, um, which would make uh, companies perhaps less vulnerable uh, to future pandemics. 
And uh, we have observed this already uh, in Japan over the past uh, couple of decades. Moving towards automation means that this wage-related pressures can be offset by higher productivity uh, through automation potentially, and uh, the uh, share of income going to capital can potentially remain high if companies choose to replace labor with capital. So this is another thing that that can actually be disinflationary. So we're talking about longer term persistence in wage pressures, but if automation offsets this, that that can become disinflationary. But of course, the time horizon for automation to be significant in this process is much longer. So near term, medium term, it is likely that we will continue seeing uh, upward pressure on wages. Um, one last point before we um, move on to look at the, the regions. Steve, um, you've spoken in the past about your concerns about the dollar because of the extraordinary um, expansion of, of money supply. Um, that's not changing for any time uh, anytime soon, is it? No. Um, and I still, notwithstanding the events in the last week where the dollar has actually got a bid because of the pivot by the Fed, um, yeah, I, I, I do believe that the dollar is going to come under sustained pressure for you know many years and i think you know it just goes back to to basics i think richard you have got two elements here first of all money supply growth in the us as you say is um was currently at 18% year on year for m2 so it was at 25% so it's slowing somewhat but still you've had a huge amount of money supply growth in the us which i think is part of the reason why we're going to see this inflation impulse anyway um, and then on top of that, you've you know in the past you've had monetary dominance and fiscal you know, subservience, if you like. Now we've got fiscal dominance. You know we've got huge infrastructure plans and and you know, contingent plans. So you're going to be running, um, for example, in the US, we're going to be running at um, you know fiscal deficits around 13% of GDP. So you've got you know again economics 101. You've got huge still very rapid um, uh, money supply growth, very low interest rates, so very accommodative monetary policy and accommodative fiscal policy, which in turn, I think, results in the weak currency. And I think, you know, you just have to look at um, the second thing as well, which I think is going to be very dollar negative, is I think we're going to see a a rapid widening in the current account deficit, um, you know, because the the huge uh, twin deficit that could come as a result of fiscal Expedience, but but you know you look at the savings ratio in the in the US at the moment. I mean Anna could probably tell you the exact figure. It's somewhere around twenty percent, and let's say it goes back down towards say five percent. You've got about um, two point three trillion dollars in excess savings in the US, which you know will be spent. Um, and so again, that's just going to widen the current account deficit. So all roads, I think, lead to a weaker dollar here, and that that in itself is inflationary. But it's you know it's what the world needs. The, the last thing the world needs right now is a stronger dollar. You know, do, dollar debt tends to be denominated in dollars, and so when you get periods when the dollar is strengthening, um, that tends to you know really tighten financial conditions and makes refinancing more difficult. The world needs a, a weaker dollar um, just to to keep the plate spinning, the market clearing. So, so with a huge amount of debt outstanding. So yeah, I think it has to be a weaker dollar from here. And, and if I can just add there, Richard, just very quickly, um, it's another reason why the Fed won't be too aggressive because they know that. 
They, they, and, and, you know, the sensitivity that Steve was talking about before, if you put up interest rates too quickly, you create a stronger dollar. And that's that's just a bigger effect at the moment. Anna, can I move away from the US and towards the other great driver of the global economy, um, China? Because policy there is quite different, um, poles apart um, from, from the US. Where will it be going from here? China has um, started focusing on uh, the longer-term policy objectives yet again as the economy came out uh, of the COVID crisis. Um, and these objectives uh, include controlled deleveraging um, and rebalancing of the economy towards consumption and away from investment and exports. Um, and that's why uh, policy there has not been extremely loose, uh, both on the fiscal and monetary side, and is actually getting tighter. So we, we do see the PBOC providing some liquidity in the market when it's necessary, uh, but the overall direction uh, is actually towards uh, tighter policy. Credit impulse uh, has dropped off quite significantly, and we, we can already see that um, in the data. So China is slowing, uh, after uh, quite a significant rebound, policy is getting tighter. Um, and at the same time, uh, inflation there is also picking up, particularly uh, on the uh, PPI side, so uh, producer price index. Um, and uh, the uh, that deleveraging process uh, is happening. And so uh, here we have a couple of questions. Well, firstly, whether this deleveraging process can uh, be controlled, or do we get uncontrolled deleveraging uh, like uh, we saw in 2018 and some other episodes? Um, and the second question, what does this all mean for the rest of the world? Because China is the marginal driver of global growth. And now that it's slowing, uh, it, it probably means that the rest of the world, particularly those countries that are so much linked uh, to China, um, will also start slowing from here. Steve, does that worry you, the tightening of credit in China and, and the impact it might have elsewhere? I do think we've had quite significant tightening in financial conditions in China. So, you know, um, Anna mentioned the, the credit impulse, and this is the net change in net new credit as a percent of nominal GDP. And that's actually having been extremely um, positive, um, you know, back in uh, 2020. Now we've seen that come off very sharply to the point that it's actually started to turn negative. Now, the point being here is that, and you know, you've seen total social financing running at 11.7%. Money supply growth is extremely um, slow now. So it's, M2 is running at eight, just over 8%, 8.1% or so, which seems quite high, but it's actually very low relative to history. So all the monetary aggregates are coming off quite sharply here. And I guess the point being is that um, where, this is, where this is important is that Anna was saying that um, inflation pressures in China have been quite high, meaning through pipeline pressures. So PPI um, is currently at 9% and inflation CPI is running at 1.3%. So so it's a big difference, right? You've got pipeline inflation, but headline infl CPI is still quite low. But the, the important thing here is that, that, that um, the credit impulse has a, has a leading indicator for pipeline pressures by about nine months or so. And so... What it's implying right now is that those inflation pressures in China are they, they kind of it's, it's they're about they're peaking here and they're going to come off very sharply. So I think you know the Chinese authorities have to be very careful here. You know they're deleveraging; they have to, I guess. 
um, and they, as a result, the monetary aggregates are slowing. Um, but um, there could be a pretty hard um, hit to, to inflation and, and to growth. And I, again, I agree with Anna on this, in the, is that you know, at some stage they may have to start supplying more total social financing, more monetary growth. Otherwise, it could be a you know, more difficult backdrop for, for the Chinese economy. And just very quickly on that inflation point, though, just, just just to add to it, there's also the pork prices, which is fascinating. So pork prices are down 50% in China and pork prices matter massively for CPI. So it's almost creating that, that gap between that input price uh, PPI and the consumer price, keeping it really low. Um, but it's it's come off 50% because there's a uh, there's African swine flu going through the po- the, the pork um, population. So effectively, you slaughter all the all the pigs and sell it. So there's massive oversupply. But obviously, that means that supply next year um, will, will will be much shorter, and so potentially goes up. So there's this there's this kind of wave effect of PPI being high now, but CPI may be high next year. So there's a it's a real to to, to see Steve's point. There's a real high wire one with regard to the PBOC. That's interesting. Um, so far. China has been one of the good news stories coming out of the pandemic. Um, Apparently, no cases um, of COVID-19 in China and in Hong Kong. That must be an advantage um, as economies elsewhere in the region start to open up. There's a real challenge over the next six months in this part of Asia. It's been fantastic to live in a place that has... I've seen such little um, uh, coronavirus. Uh, We've had zero cases for weeks now. But there has to be a pivot at some point to to living with this virus, um, and that's just not on the horizon at the moment. And I think it's, it's perfectly possible that in the next six months we could see Western economies, uh, having been vaccinated, start to travel and those sectors pick up, such as tourism uh, and, and such like. Uh, and the, the areas here where their travel hubs like Hong Kong and Singapore, they, they've really got to think hard about their policy and how they you know, don't get left behind by by a year um, you know, trying to trying to sort out what's going on. It's time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Anna, let me come to you first this time. So I think that, um, and we, we didn't talk about it too much, but this is a huge topic, um, and that is uh, uh, climate change risks and the green transition um, across the world. And I think this is particularly gaining speed uh, in China and Europe uh, right now. And so... Uh, I think my hot cakes would be anything related to that, perhaps European renewables or whichever way this this transition um, can be expressed, uh, particularly uh, with the Recovery and Resilience Fund um, looking to start first disbursement in the next couple of months. Uh, so that would be my hot cake. In terms of hot potatoes, uh, this is, a, I think, a very near uh, uh, near term um, a dynamic. But um, uh, I would be underweight uh, uh, developed market currencies versus the dollar because I do think uh, that that um, uh, temporary trend in um, uh, stronger dollar will continue, and with the ECB not having any incentive. Uh, to uh, to become hawkish and to move towards tapering, I think the euro will likely go lower from here. So a temporary counter to what Steve was talking about earlier. But um, uh, thank you for those. Um, Steve, let me come to you now then. So um, your hot cakes, first of all. 
Okay, so hotcakes, I, I think, um, given my views uh, about financial repression and so on, so I, I think this is an environment where um, policy rates are going to stay low for an extended period of time, despite all you know the inflation pressures and so on, um, and yields will stay in check. So I think this is an, an environment where you will need to find income. Um, so that would include things like you know China high yield. It would include um, uh, you know euro high yield. Um, so any any sort of um, anything which gives you a decent form of income, I would say. Um, again, um, I would also. I would say you kind of want to go for Chinese renminbi assets because of the lack of correlation that it has with um, with other markets. Um, again, global hybrids. I still think that looks pretty good. Good risk premium in, in that asset class. And then finally, um, my old stomping ground in emerging market debt. It, it's a high duration asset class on the, the sovereign credit side. It's about uh, you know, eight and a half years or so. So it's always going to be under threat when you see. Um, when you see rising core yields. Um, however, I think local currency debt looks pretty good in a way because, you know, because again, on my view on the dollar, I think it always performs well in a weak dollar and environment. Hot potatoes. Hot potatoes. Hmm. That's a tougher <laughs> one. I, I think I might be a bit more controversial here and say sell Bitcoin. I'm, I'm a armchair expert. I've been following it for years and years. And, and, and I, you know, I've, very much in the in the view that you know that uh, fiat currencies are going to be are being debased at the moment, so why not go for crypto? But I just think this is a very clunky asset. It's not going to be the eventual crypto that um, that people will, will utilize, whether it's Ethereum or whatever it might be. But I, I just I don't see the value in in Bitcoin. I can anticipate the howls of protest from the Bitcoin champions, but sadly for them, they're not on uh, this recording right now. But um, Matt. Finally, to you, your hotcakes, unless they include Bitcoin. Oh, no, they don't. I'm going to pick up on the um, commodity and green theme um, and give you kind of a hotcake and a, and a, and a, a hot potato. So um, if you look out um, 10 years from here, uh, in order to do all of this green revolution, you've got to have stacks of copper. If you think about the amount of electrical wiring that's going to go around the world, there's this huge percentage of copper, um, aluminium, nickel that's going to be required um, in order to um, deliver that. And, and we don't to, to plan the mines for that. You've got to you've got to plan five, seven years ahead, and they just haven't been planned. So buying uh, stocks linked to copper um, and then selling. Um, stocks linked to iron ore. So iron ore, on the other hand, um, isn't required, you know, in large part in these in in, in this revolution. And the, the China have been building with iron ore for the last twenty thirty years, and it's coming to um, uh, the point where you scrap it and you you can recycle it and bring a lot of scrap on board. So there's a huge amount of scrap um, iron ore that's going to be coming on the market, and thus um, you could own own copper linked stuff and not own iron ore stuff. And actually, just to pick up on the revolution, the, the carbon zero revolution that you, Matt, and uh, Anna have, have referred to, um, there is quite a bit on that and the, the tipping point that um, our analysts think that we've reached that's in the latest um, analyst survey, Fidelity Analyst Survey, is with an ESG um, focus that we've just published. So you can read all about that on fidelityinternational.com and also um, listen to a, um, a, f- a podcast that's focused on that topic. But that brings us to the end of this episode. 
and you can hear more on other investment topics on Rich Pickings or Fidelity Answers. I'd like to thank my guests, Anna Stubnitzka, Steve Ellis, Matt Quaife, and also Andrew McCaffrey and Max Stainton. The producer is Seb Morton-Clark with technical production by Alex Wilcox. But from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.